You're listening to the Complete Concussion Management Podcast with Dr. Cameron Marshall. Ask Concussion Doc is a show where we answer your questions about concussions, treatment, and rehabilitation to help practitioners better manage these injuries. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Ask Concussion Doc, episode number 86, we think. Not totally sure. We're still all locked down, still in the middle of the COVID-19 crisis. I hope that everybody is still staying safe and staying healthy, practicing your social distancing, staying sane, not killing your loved ones or your toddlers that are so wonderful but also crazy for some reason. Um, Yeah, today is Wednesday, April 8th. And uh, we're right in the middle of this thing. I think that hopefully things are going to start to level out soon and, and things are going to somewhat start returning back to normal. But uh, for now, this is our, our new normal. What we've been doing during this period is rather than having a set agenda, we've just been going live and trying to help as many people as possible with their concussion questions and problems and issues so that we can provide you some form of rehab or treatment during this time when I know that a lot of clinics are closed and you're not able to get rehab. Also for the healthcare professionals that are out there that are interested in concussion rehab and treatment and just have some questions about certain aspects of, you know, the field or maybe even problem cases that you're having. um, We're here to share our experience and knowledge with that. For those of you guys listening on the podcast, this happened last week. If you want to get in on the live version, this happens every Wednesday at 1.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. A little housekeeping today. Is it today that's the International Day of Bullying? Um, International Day of Pink, which is uh, an anti-bullying campaign. So we've shared some stuff on complete concussion management uh, to show our support for that. And I believe it was yesterday that was World Healthcare Day, World Health Day, um, in support of midwives and as well as nurses, um, which right now are um, extremely helpful to all of us on the front line. So kudos to the frontline healthcare workers that are um, risking their own health and safety to protect those that are sick and those of us that aren't yet sick. Um, from COVID-19. So thank you very much. Uh, Okay, so I see some comments rolling in right now. I'm on two different platforms here. So on Complete Concussion, someone just saying thanks. Thank you for joining. Um, uh, Told I have a left BPPV, which is uh, benign paroxysmal positional vertigo, uh, which is a form of vertigo where little crystals in your ear get dislodged and uh, they make you have dizziness. Um, So this person has left BPV horizontal. Uh, The PT did a barbecue roll on uh, her, I think, Keisha, um, four times, starting on the right side and it didn't help. Um, Generally, like... BPV, I can't really help you because I would have to know the direction of the nystagmus that's happening. Um, Sometimes 
these types of BPPV can be um, persistent where something is actually stuck, which is called cupulolithiasis, which is a, is a more rare form. Um, I think horizontal canal BPPV in general is a rare form of, of, of BPPV. I think maybe only 10 to 15% of cases are actually in the horizontal canal. Uh, 80 to 85% are actually in the, in the posterior canal. That's the most common form of BPPV. So horizontal canal in general is going to be more on the rare side. Most of them are going to be what's called canalithiasis, which is uh, a free-flowing crystal, which is generally easily to maneuver. In a more rare set of that is what's called cupulothiasis, where the crystal actually gets stuck a little bit. And so for that one, you would need a little bit of a different maneuver, which requires faster motion um, throughout uh, the process rather than just doing a standard barbecue roll, which is going to be helpful for somebody with canal lithiasis and has a pretty good success rate. I think it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 85% um, after one or two applications. If it's not successful, that may indicate that there's something called a cupulolithiasis, which may require a different maneuver. Um, and also, it could be that they're doing it the wrong way. If your nystagmus is going a certain direction and they've misinterpreted that nystagmus, they actually may be doing the wrong direction for you. Um, so sometimes in these cases, you need somebody who really, really knows the difference between the, the canals and which direction and stuff. So I would try to find somebody who's really proficient with vestibular rehab. Um, and I would, I would go from there. BBV is generally a very treatable condition. Um, obviously it's very scary because you roll over in bed at night and all of a sudden your, your room starts to spin and everything goes crazy for a little bit. Um, but it is a very treatable condition. Oh, I see you have another comment here below. I get symptoms raising my arms above the head, turning head to the right and spinal movement. That doesn't sound like BBV. BBV is positional, meaning that you basically you you may get some symptoms like you may feel a little bit off balance just throughout your day but bbv will be a significant amount of vertigo but only when you're in a certain position right it's positional vertigo meaning that when you're not in that position you feel somewhat okay you may feel a little bit unsteady or off but you don't feel the spinning vertigo sensation but when you go into that particular position which if it's, let's say it's uh, left-sided BBV, generally either on your right or your left side, depending on which direction your nystagmus is, which is why things get a little bit confusing with this, but you'll only feel it when you're in that position. If you're, if you're feeling vertigo sensation when you're doing different things, then it's not necessarily BBV, it's probably something different, which has to be kind of investigated. So um, I can't really direct you any further on that. My physio has seen my pupils constantly dilating in and out quickly since my concussion. What could cause this kind of pupil response at times? Uh, your pupils respond to a few different things. One is light and the other one is uh, accommodation. So accommodation is how near or far your visual field is. So if you're looking far away, your pupils may, may dilate or open up, or if you're looking more narrowly, they may constrict or vice versa. So your pupils will change in response to moving a different stimulus towards yourself or away from yourself. Uh, your pupils will also change in response to light. So if there's less light hitting your retina, your pupils will dilate. If there's more light coming in, they will generally constrict. Um, 
the fact that your pupils are dilating in and out um, constantly since concussion, this is not a typical finding of concussion. This is a reflex. Um, this reflex can is usually more delayed in concussion patients than sped up. Um, but this can also be controlled by the patient, whereas if you're focusing on something far away and then the physio or the PT looks in your eye and then all of a sudden it constricts, it may just be because you've gone from looking at something far away to looking at something closer to yourself. Um, so your, your pupils will respond to changes in light and accommodation. And generally the concerning thing about pupils is you want them to be equal. So if the pupils are both equal and they're dilating and constricting, that's all just in respect to how much light's coming in or how near or far you're looking at something at the time. If they're unequal, then this could indicate a few different things. Sometimes it's a sympathetic issue, like your sympathetic nervous system has some sort of issue. Sometimes this is what's called congenital, where people will have a dilated pupil and another one be constricted. Uh, sometimes it's in relation to injury. So if you have damage uh, to, um, to some of the nerves around your eye, one pupil can remain um, uh, dilated and the other one would be would be constricted so there's a number of different possibilities generally you want people's pupils to be round in shape okay the the the, the acronym is called PERLA P-E is it R-R-L-A P yeah pupils equal reactive to light and accommodation pupils equal round reactive to light and accommodation so light when light comes in, they should constrict. When light is dim in darkness, they should dilate to try and get more light in so you can see better. And then also with respect to accommodation, meaning how far or near your visual focus is at that time. So as long as they're equal and round and they're reacting to those things, then that is normal pupillary response. If they're abnormal, if they're misshapen, if they're, you know, you would need further investigation on that. But just the fact that they're dilating and constricting it doesn't necessarily mean anything. What can be great home exercises to work on balance? I just started a vir virtual workout, but when my heart rate elevates, I get lots of head pain. Um, I have had a tree fall on my head. Um, so elevated heart rate causing an increase in concussion symptoms can be a few different things. Um, the main thing from the University of Buffalo, they've done a lot of research on this, showing that um, blood flow impairments or blood flow dysregulations related to your, your autonomic nervous system, uh, when you get your heart rate up, if your blood vessels are not accommodating to the, the, to the right amount of blood flow, if you're not able to get enough or the right amount of blood flow up into your brain as you're exercising, the, the theory is that's what causes that increase in symptoms. And so you're, you're considered what's called exercise intolerant. So you start getting your heart rate up and you start experiencing this increase in symptoms. The treatment for that is actually exercise, but you want to exercise in what's called a sub-symptom threshold level. So you want to exercise below the threshold in which you get symptoms. Typically, the way that this is tested for is that we put you on the Buffalo Concussion Treadmill Test. 
So we put a heart rate monitor on you, we put you on a treadmill, we have you start walking, and then we gradually increase the intensity of the test so that your heart rate gradually goes up by a couple beats every minute. And we keep asking you, do you have any increase in your headache? Do you have any dizziness? Do you have any blurred vision? Do you have any symptoms? If your symptoms start increasing with increased exercise, then we suggest that that's likely due to this what's called physiologic PCS, which is uh, an autonomic nervous system or a blood flow issue. It, theoretically, that's, that's the thought process behind it right now. Now that we know what your threshold heart rate is, we tell you to exercise and we want you exercising every day, but we don't want you exercising up here, we want you exercising right here so that you're about 80 to 90% of what your threshold heart rate is so that you're not becoming symptomatic every time you exercise. Here's the problem though, because when you're doing a virtual workout program, generally you're not doing steady state cardio. So people that have problems with exercise, we typically tell them to start with steady state cardio at a sub-symptom threshold level because you can control that. But when you're doing something like a virtual workout, which is usually more of a circuit type thing, usually you're doing like you know a couple sets and then you take a little bit of a rest, then you do a couple sets and you take a little bit of a rest. Well, the problem with that is let's say your threshold is here, right? For those that can see me, for those listening, uh, sorry you're missing out, but basically I have a line going across. And let's say that my heart rate starts out down here, but then I do a set and I spike above my threshold and then I rest and I come back down and then I spike above my threshold. So in that period, you're actually going above that threshold. Whereas in a steady state, you can get up to that level and just maintain it and hold it and hold it and hold it. So you're not going above it. So if you're getting symptomatic with exercise, generally the idea is start lower with steady state cardio. Right now, I would normally say go get a treadmill test from, from somebody who does treadmill testing like a, like a complete concussion management clinic or something like that but every, everybody's closed, so you can't do that. So what I would say right now in the meantime is start low, okay? Start fine, just go for a walk, find that pace, and then if that's fine, the next day try going a little bit higher and then find that pace, and then go a little bit higher and then find that pace. If you want, you can even get a heart rate monitor, or a Fitbit or something to try and find a heart rate and then try to keep yourself at that heart rate for 20 to 30 minutes and see how you do. If everything is fine with that, then you can move up and you're gradually going to push yourself up and up and up and up to try and find out what level is good for you. The other thing that this could be is issues with your visual system, with your vestibular system or with your neck, right? If your workout program now has things like burpees and push-ups and, and, you know, different things where you're moving your head in different directions and spinning or, you know, doing standing, jumping and things like that, that can activate, you know, your visual system up and down. It can activate your vestibular system side to side. Or what also could happen is you might be jamming up your neck. So a lot of times headaches, that are post-concussion headaches are actually neck headaches. You have neck tension that develops as a result of the injury and that starts to refer pain up into your head. Like right now, I have this left-sided kind of frontal headache and it gets worse when I put my hand here, but it's actually coming from back here because whenever I put pressure on the front of my forehead, my neck counterbalances that and it tries to react and stiffen up when I put my head on my hand on my forehead and then I feel the pain start back here and come right over the top of my forehead. So when you're doing things like burpees and up and down and turning your head side to side, you might actually just have a tight neck that's starting to get irritated and aggravated, and that might be the cause of your head pain. So what I would say is go away from the virtual workout program, start doing just steady state stuff like walking outside and whatever else, socially distancing of course, getting your 
heart rate up gradually over time. So go out one day and say, I'm going to stay here at, you know, 110 beats a minute. And then I'm going to go up to 115. And then next day I'm going to go to 120. And the next day I'm going to go 125. Find the balance that works for you and then do steady state for a while at that level or slightly below. Like let's say 125 was too high. Go back down to 120 or even 115 and then stay there for a week. And then try again at 125 or even 130 and see how you do and then pull back slightly from that. And you're gradually going to be able to do more and more and more. If you can do that, then you can start moving in with some of the more the up and down type of, you know, virtual type workouts and see how you respond to that. If you're still having issues, like I said, it could be other systems that are involved. So um, that would be the, my best advice on that. Uh... What causes head pressure? Um, it could be a whole bunch of different things. Um, generally, I find them to be neck related for the most part. So having um, um, you know neck issues that go with it, they, that can cause this head pressure, which feels like it's in or it's out. Could be TMJ. Sometimes people will feel pressure right here. That could be a TMJ issue, like your jaw. Um, PCS TBI spec showed hypoperfusion. I wouldn't put too much weight in that. Um, there's a lot of people that are using, you know, spec imaging and getting people to come and do these imaging studies that look at, you know, blood flow on, on spect. Um, the problem with spect though, is that it will often show very similar findings in patients with concussion as patients with basically any other condition in the world. So spect looks at blood flow and they'll look at like perfusion levels in the brain. So they'll look at an area and go, oh, that, that area of your brain is not getting enough uh, blood perfusion. But when you look at somebody with neck pain, they will also show hyperperfusion in their brain. If you look at somebody with depression, they will also show hyperperfusion hypoperfusion in certain areas of the brain. If you look at somebody with uh, anything, low back pain will show hypoperfusion in their brain. So if you're having symptoms, whatever they may be, it might just be a pain response and yet, they're telling you it's because of concussion. It may have nothing to do with your concussion whatsoever. It might just be the fact that you're in pain and that alters you know, the findings on these imaging modalities. These imaging modalities are not meant for individual diagnostic use at all. The research on them basically suggests that they are research tools and they should be used as that to try and understand more about what's going on. And maybe at a group level, if we took a hundred of you or a thousand of you and put them all through this, we might see some differences between concussion and anxiety or concussion and whatever. But when you take an individual patient, we don't know enough yet about what we're looking at to say, to make an individual diagnostic decision based on your condition. So don't worry about what the SPECT finding shows because you may just have anxiety. Don't worry about what the SPECT, you know, uh, it, it, you, you may have neck pain, you may have low back pain, you may have pain in, in general, you may just be worried about your condition and that may be affecting things. So I wouldn't put too much stock into that part of it. But head pressure, uh, in my experience, is mostly like a, like a neck related issue. Um, it could be to do with, you know, stuff in the inner ears that you station tube. It could be due to TMJ. Um, that's, that's my experience, mostly what it is. Does the tightening of the neck due to stress and looking at screens all day lead to symptoms? Yes, it can. It's the same same thing, right? Like if you think about if your neck gets tight, it can cause what's called a referred pain into the head. And so if you're sitting there all day in a poor posture position, if you have some sort of neck dysfunction, it can start to cause headaches. But those could also be due to your eyes straining on a screen all day or you know a bunch of other things. So it's hard to uh, 
to say. Have you heard of have you heard of clients two months post concussion experiencing muscle aching when performing tasks, for example, when carrying groceries, soreness of elbow flexors and shoulders, uh, only in the case where they're severely deconditioned. So a lot of times following concussion, patients are told to rest and do nothing. And the problem with that is that they become very deconditioned. So the patient may experience muscle fatigue or aching with very trivial tasks because they haven't done anything in two months and now they're starting to experience it. But generally, if you are having that, that could be signs and symptoms of, of other things. It's generally not a concussion-related thing. Any home treatment ideas for persistent symptoms related to audio? What do you mean? What do you mean by that? This is Keisha IG. How important is neck strength in concussion? Uh, do you mean in terms of concussion prevention or concussion recovery? This is for Michael underscore magic hands. <laughs> Sick handle, by the way. Uh, talk about exercise and associated symptoms. Could stimulating trigeminal nerve and vagus nerve potentially reduce symptoms? Um, yeah, potentially. I haven't seen a ton of evidence on that, but there's a lot right now, especially around vagus nerve stimulation for like gut brain axis um, and and that type of thing. Um, it's more of like a, like a functional medicine type of, of treatment, but it's newer. It's newer. There's just isn't a lot of a ton of evidence on it for concussion yet. What do you think about upper cervical chiros like Nuka? Um, I don't think you need somebody who's like an upper cervical person. You need somebody who knows how to treat the upper cervical spine, um, but it's not necessarily just your upper cervical spine. Like the upper cervical spine is an important area for concussion. So just sorry, the question is, what do you think of upper cervical chiros like Nuka? Um, generally, it's if you have neck issues, it's not just the upper cervical spine. Like a lot of the patients that I see have issues with their SCM. They have issues with their lower cervical spine. They have issues with even their upper thoracic spine. So having somebody just focus on this one little spot may give certain people some relief, but it's going to miss a big portion as well. So I wouldn't worry about going to somebody who's just upper cervical. You want to find somebody that knows the upper cervical, but they can also that also works on a lot of the other areas. I find that 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 brand tends to focus just solely on this one little area. They take x-rays and do all sorts of stuff that's been completely disproven um, to show anything. You know, they'll take x-rays and say, oh, this is shifted this much to the left and whatever else. But if, I, if you gradually just turn somebody a little bit, you can make anything look like anything on an x-ray. So I wouldn't necessarily put too much stock in that. But um, the upper cervical spine is an important component of concussion because it can cause a lot of the same symptoms but they can also be coming from other parts of the neck and so if you go to somebody who's only focused on that one little spot you're going to potentially miss all the other things that may be included if that makes if that makes sense as an explanation question which is a better treatment osteopathy or chiropractic for neck pain um i don't think it's i mean it, i don't think it matters it's who's the who's the clinician right there's there's really good osteopaths who are gonna who are gonna do really great treatment. There's really good chiros who are gonna do really great treatment. It just depends on which style you prefer and which one works best for what you have. Um, uh, 
like for example, just to answer that a, a, a little bit further, I'm a chiropractor. I work on a lot of necks. It's you know most of what I do, but I'll have patients that will then go to an osteopath and then come back and say, wow, that was really, really beneficial for me. And then I'll have other patients that may even go to the same osteopath and say, yeah, it didn't really work for me. I didn't really like what they did. So it's really, it's personal preference. It depends on the issue that's going on, but um, really it's, it's, it's patient preference. Could the feeling of head pressure come from issues with the tissue, tissue issues? I feel like my issue is very tight behind my ears and the meniscus, what meniscus? Jaw, TMJ, I'm guessing. Uh, meniscus makes weird crunchy sounds in my ears. Um, yes, head pressure could come from the TMJ. It could come from issues in your neck. It could come from muscles. It could come from joints. Um, it, it's it's just you got to find out what it is. That's that's the challenge is finding out what it is. Um, but it could all be involved. Generally, things like right behind the ears, like which is the, a little bony area called the mastoid process, kind of right in this area for those that can see me. Um, your SCM muscle attaches right there. Your SCM muscle is this kind of big one that comes from right here. Uh, if I can push against it there, you can see that pop out. That's the SCM muscle. It attaches back here on the mastoid. So SCM stands for sternocleidomastoid. So it attaches to your sternum, which is right here in the front, your clavicle. So that's your sternocleido and then your mastoid back here. So it goes from right here to back here. It's this big chunky guy in, in your neck and it helps your neck with rotation and flexion and things. And because it attaches back here, oftentimes when you have issues with the SCM, when this muscle gets really tight, it can cause pain to feel right behind your ear and the mastoid process. It also causes pain in the face, okay, the forehead, into the eyes, the cheek, into the jaw. So sometimes this SCM muscle can cause a lot of stuff around the ear and pressure and things. And so that's one that I, I frequently get to, um, but it's uh, a lot of clinicians won't treat it. It's a it's a slippery muscle. It's hard to treat and it's kind of awkward because you're in the front. There's a lot of vasculature there. So some people don't feel comfortable getting in on it, um, but that that can be it. So a lot of times I find that just by knowing where someone's headache is, you can kind of piece together what to check and what to see is potentially the cause. So I would say SCM. Yeah, neurofeedback. So the question is, do you find neurofeedback to be a good way to do, reduce anxiety and stress post-concussion? Which type of neurofeedback do you recommend? I don't have any specific recommendations. Um, there's some that, that will work on things like like breathing. Um, those, those tend to be good. Um, I think this is just a way for um, you to understand your own physiology and help to kind of reduce your own stress levels. Um, it's, it's an, it's an interesting thing. There's, there's new, there's more research coming out on it, um, you know, every day, every month. So I think it's, it's becoming even more prevalent, more well-known, but it's, uh, it's, um, it's a potentially a useful strategy for some people. I was hit by a car two years ago and now I have PCS and every time I get anxiety, it triggers my symptoms. Will this ever go away? Here's the thing. Okay, great question. Anxiety, the symptoms of anxiety look the exact same as the symptoms of concussion. So what I would say is deal with the anxiety. If you can deal with the anxiety, right, you'll get rid of the trigger that causes the other symptoms. So it's really that way, right? And I have a lot of patients that will have had a concussion as an inciting incident or event, 
and they'll come in, we'll work on some stuff, and mostly what they're dealing with is an anxiety issue. And so they will go through talk therapy, uh, they may go through a short course of medication or something like that, but once they get that part in check, that's when they start to, to feel better. So concussion can cause anxiety disorders, concussion can cause depression, um, and dealing with the mental health aspect is probably the biggest step forward you can make in your recovery. If you have ongoing anxiety and you're not, you can't deal with that piece or you're not handling that piece, all the other stuff is just useless, right? Um, so I would say just deal with the anxiety as if it's an anxiety disorder. Go through, you know, talk therapy. Uh, well, now it's a lot of virtual stuff. Uh, find a social worker, psychologist, something like that that you can start working on the anxiety piece, get strategies to deal with that. Do things like meditation, exercise, etc. Things to reduce the anxiety. Because if you can reduce the anxiety, you'll reduce the symptoms that you're dealing with and suffering with. So um, that would be my number one recommendation for you. Can you discuss what baseline tests you would put in place preseason for an athlete to use as a measuring tool in case of a concussion during the season? Um, no, these are my secrets. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, yeah, okay. So generally when you're doing a baseline test on an athlete, a lot of people make the mistake of thinking that if you just do a computerized test, that's good enough. All of the evidence on, on baseline testing and preseason testing shows that a computerized test, which is, uh, there's a few different versions out there of, of different tests that people do. A computerized test by itself is, there's issues with it. Um, they have issues with test retest reliability and they're not able to test the full spectrum of what could potentially be injured in a concussion. So even the manufacturers of these tools suggest that they are meant to be one component of what should be a more robust you know, battery of tests. Like anything, when it comes to healthcare or medicine, if you're only gonna use one test, you're gonna miss a whole bunch of stuff, right? One example that I use is let's say you, um, uh, for our physiotherapists out there, let's say you think somebody has um, a meniscal injury in their knee. And if you were only gonna do one orthopedic test, your, your diagnostic accuracy would be minimal. Whereas if you were to do five or six different tests that would help you to now go, okay, I'm starting to see a pattern here where now I'm, it definitely is a meniscal tear. Or I did this test and it was positive, but these other five were negative. So I'm starting to think it's not a meniscal tear. It might be something else, right? Because there's always a margin of error with any test that you do. So the trick is to find the best battery of tests that you can utilize to help arrive at your diagnosis. Right, like if I do blood work on somebody, I may pick up some abnormal things. And then I'm gonna say, you know what, uh, this is indicative of this. I'm gonna do some more blood work in this area because, because these two things are out of whack. And then you're gonna see some more findings. And that might lead you to get a urine test. That might lead you to do an ultrasound on somebody's abdomen. And then that ultrasound might, might show a little thing. That might lead you to get a CT scan and then maybe a biopsy and eventually lead to the diagnosis of whatever it may be. But if you were just to do a urine test or you were just to do a blood test and then try to make a diagnosis from that, you're going to miss a whole bunch of stuff, right? So it's the same thing with concussion. So relying on any one test is going to be insufficient. And a lot of clinics are just doing computerized testing. A lot of schools are just running computerized testing and saying, hey, everybody come in and do this computer test. That's your baseline. But 
you're going to miss a huge portion of potential concussion injuries if that's all you're doing. And you're also going to make clearance decisions way too early in a huge portion of people if that's all you're doing. So when you're doing a baseline test, you have to think about what areas could be impacted following concussion. And you want to try and encompass all of those areas and you want to have a multifaceted approach, right? If you're only doing computer tests, you're going to miss balance. You're going to miss ocular motor tracking. You're going to miss, um, you're going to miss a whole bunch of stuff, strength, motor strength, potentially. Um, so what we've done at complete concussion management, we've gone through all the different tests that are out there, tried to find the test with the best test retest reliability, right? And nothing's going to be effective beyond, you know, eight months to a year or so. So you're going to have to retest people every, you know, eight months to a year. We've had a hard enough time trying to get people to come back year after year after year to do this type of testing. Uh, so eight months is going to be a stretch. I mean, if I had my way, I would have people tested every six months because after that period of time, especially when you're dealing with adolescents, they're going to get bigger, faster, stronger, etc., and you're not going to be able to have um, accurate results, right? If I test you in grade 10 and then I don't see you again until grade 12, well, your grade 10 results don't mean shit because as a concussed grade 12, you're probably better, faster, bigger, stronger than your grade 10 healthy self. So it doesn't really help us, right? So you have to do this pretty frequently in order to have it and you have to have a good uh, robust picture of tests. And you also have to think about the longevity of those tests. And what I mean by longevity is if you're to get injured today, how long are you going to show impairment? Like what's the sensitivity of that test? And for example, the SCAT test, a lot of people will do the SCAT test, which for those that don't know, stands for the uh, sport concussion assessment tool. This was developed to be a sideline test, meaning that at the moment of injury, I can test somebody. Right. And in order to have, you know, the, the results on this show that it's better if you do have a baseline versus comparing to a normative and a, having a baseline again, for those who don't know, is testing people when they're healthy so that you know what results to expect. So if somebody does have a suspected concussion and I test their balance, well, I need to know what their balance is normally in order to, you know, see how much variation there is there. So with the SCAT test, for example, this, the, the issues normalize, right? So balance, uh, there's some memory testing on there, there's some concentration testing on there. The, the, the research on this shows that the SCAT test normalizes after injury in as little as three to four days. So if I'm trying to use that test to make a diagnosis right on the sidelines, sure, that works. But if I'm trying to use that test to make a return to play decision, that test sucks because the symptoms of a concussion will typically last seven to 10 days. When my baseline becomes important is trying to make a return to play decision afterwards because we know that the healing of the brain takes longer than it does for the symptoms to go away. So now I wanna know, okay, the symptoms are gone. How's their function? Well, I can't use the SCAT test because it sucks because it's only three to four days and then it normalizes. It's not sensitive enough to show me things beyond that. So the SCAT test, helpful for diagnosis, not helpful for return to play. So what else can we use? Well, we can use, let's say the best test, which is part of balance, which is the balance error scoring system. That's part of the SCAT. That normalizes again in three to four days. But if you look at a force plate and you look at center of pressure area, for example, which is one of the tests that we use, that doesn't normalize for three to four weeks. There you go. So now the force plate can help me make a diagnosis, but can also help me make a return to play decision. So I would definitely want to include force plate data and postural sway into my assessment battery.
Another one, reaction time. We use a simple drop stick reaction time test, which was developed by the University of Michigan. It has excellent test retest reliability, and it shows um, it shows that it takes you know 14 days to 21 days to actually normalize after concussion, and in some cases actually even longer than that, up to as long as 50 days to normalize. So good test for diagnosis, good test for return to play. We also use a test called the King Devic test, which is an ocular motor tracking test. This test has been shown to be one of the most sensitive concussion tests on the sidelines and also shows dysfunction in concussed patients for weeks after the injury. That's what we want. So it's good on the sidelines and it's good for return to play. Okay. So generally our baseline battery, you need to think about it in, a, in that full way, right? If you're only going to do tests that are meant for the sideline, you're going to have a terrible time making return to play decisions. If you're only going to use one test and think that that's good enough, you're going to miss all the other components, right? What if somebody gets a concussion that affects their balance system, but the only test you did was a computerized test that doesn't look at balance at all? Well, this person may look like they've normalized and they're back to normal and they're ready to go, but yet they still have balance impairments that you don't even know about. So now you're making a return to sport decision with no information. Right? So you need to look at everything that a concussion could affect, balance, reaction time, vision, ocular motor function, uh, processing speeds, uh, cognitive function, um, you know, memory concentration, executive function, all of that stuff. And you need to have something that can see that in the acute stages, but also after the symptoms have gone away. All right? So when you're making your initial diagnosis, they find that the most sensitive piece of information you have is somebody's symptoms. So a lot of times people will think that having a baseline is purely meant for making your concussion diagnosis. You don't need a baseline to make a concussion diagnosis because somebody's going to come in and they're going to say, I got hit and I have symptoms. That's a concussion. I don't need to put you through 15 different tests to prove what I already know. When the baseline becomes more valuable is if the person is denying symptoms, right? They got hit and they just, they're off balance and they're coming off the field and you're like, okay, you got a concussion. They're like, no, I don't. I'm fine. And you have to do something to try and show that, yes, they do have something wrong with them. You can do a baseline then. That's when it helps you with your diagnosis. But the most important piece of having a good baseline is actually after the symptoms have gone away and you're trying to see when they're safe to return to sport. So now you test them over here, right? For those that can see me, I'm doing visual stuff. Um, I hope that answers the question. Uh, any chance you have a video of patients with a concussion doing basic treatment, searching for my class? Um, the only videos we have, I have like non-patients doing stuff just for educational purposes, but I can't, I don't film patients typically because of uh, health privacy stuff, but um, sorry. <laughs> All right, that's it for me. See you guys, stay safe, stay healthy, and I'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Complete Concussion Management Podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe and let us know by leaving a review. Have questions about concussion management for future episodes? Submit them to our website, Facebook, or even Instagram. See you next time.